This is a diet of Brussels. Today I'm on a bit of a field trip. I'm in London at uh, the Open Europe EU war game, which is uh, a day-long exercise to simulate the negotiations uh, that might take place, first of all in a, a renegotiation, and then secondly in a, a post-Brexit uh, scenario. Um, just to give you an idea of how this works, uh, we've got a number of former ministers and ambassadors from different countries who are going to play their, their country's roles. And I just want, in this podcast, to kind of try and bring you a flavour of that as we go through the day uh, and reflect on the process. So just uh, so you know, this isn't a full recreation of the negotiations. We haven't got all the parties. So we've obviously got the, the UK. So in the morning, that's been played by uh, former Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkins. In the afternoon, it's been played by the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Norman Lamont. Then we've got uh, the Germans, we've got the French, the Italians, the Spanish, uh, we've got uh, the Irish, the Poles, Netherlands, uh, we've got the Nordics, uh, played as one group, and we've got the uh, EU institutions. So uh, over the course of these two games, we're going to see a variety of opinions. Um, it's worth saying that we're not going to go have everyone. So we've got only one Central East European country, so that's Poland. So in terms of how much we get the representation of the variety of views in Central and Eastern Europe, I think uh, we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, potentially we've got something here that looks like uh, an attempt to, to understand the kind of dynamics, the scope for agreement, um, which potentially is a, a very timely one in the case of the renegotiation exercise, and given that we're much closer to where we were than uh, the last time Open Europe ran one of these uh, games in uh, 2013, uh, it'd be interesting to see how that compares. So here we are at the end of the uh, first half of the first game, which is the renegotiation exercise. Uh, in essence, what's happened is uh, the British have presented... Uh, proposals that were contained in the letter to Donald Tusk back in October and then we've gone around the table and heard the different views. This isn't really a, a very realistic kind of recreation of a negotiation, it's more kind of uh, here's what we all think and so it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. But there are some thin themes which I think are interesting and relevant. The first one is that there's a degree of uh, impatience with the British position in terms of the relative uh, degree of accommodation that's already happened for the UK uh, from other partners, uh, the way in which uh, accommodations have already been made, uh, and a concern that uh, this really uh, sets a, a dangerous precedent. Uh, tellingly, it was one of the, uh, it was the Spanish delegates who uh, was worried that this would be uh, just the first of many countries coming and saying we want more. Again, perhaps this is a, a failing of the, the structure of the game, that we don't have many of those countries, uh, those obvious suspects, uh, sitting around the table saying, well, if they get that, I want this. In addition, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that still there's a lot of debate here, even though we know where we are in the, the real-world discussions, a lot of discussion saying, well, a renegotiation is not really the way to go about doing things, that we're still in a position uh, here where a lot of countries say, why are you even doing this? You know, what, what possible advantage does it bring? So, uh, as people mingle, uh, camera crews descend, uh, the media uh, hover, uh, everyone else works out where the loser are. 
Uh, it'd be interesting to see whether this really advances. And particularly, it'd be interesting to see how this sets up uh, the afternoon discussion, which is about uh, a post-Brexit referendum situation. Now, ideally, at this point, I'd like to show my excellent uh, on-location sound recording skills, but uh, as you can tell from the change of ambient noise, uh, that didn't quite work out. What we've got here is uh, one clip that I think just about works, which is Malcolm Rifkin talking about ever closer union. It gives you an idea of the kind of way in which he's packaging this issue uh, and trying to accommodate the, the kind of challenges that might be coming his way. But the debate, much more in Britain perhaps than in any other country, is what, where, what, what is the end process of this? What are we committed to? When we say we are committed to ever closer union, does that actually mean moving towards the dreaded phrase, some kind of United, some kind of United States of Europe? Not necessarily the same as America, but some sort of federal or quasi-federal where the process is all in one direction of powers being transferred from elected national parliaments and national governments to the European dimension. Now, I know a lot of this is exaggerated. I know a lot of this is uh, not the real Europe. That's all very understandable. But what is not able to be denied is that historically the European Union today is much more integrated than it was 40 years ago. Of course it is. That's, that's been what people have wanted to do. So now within the Eurozone, for example, Eurozone countries are contemplating how do we have a single currency without a banking union? And how do you have a single currency without ultimate uh, uh, institutions that will determine uh, economic, fiscal, and monetary policy? Uh, that is all moving in, in that one particular direction. The United States existed as a single state for 100 years before it built a single currency. Uh, Europe doing it the other way around. Now, I'm not arguing whether that's good or bad. Uh, I'm simply saying that is a fact. So what people ask in Britain, I would be astonished if some people aren't asking it in France, Germany, Italy, and Poland, and other countries, is what is the end result of this operation? And what, the, what in Britain, and let's speak in terms of the British position, what people in Britain say is, look, if I'm going to be voting yes to stay in the European Union, I don't want to be told I'm committing myself in one form or another to transferring in a one direction only more and more powers from national elected parliaments, which I go out and vote for in much higher numbers than from the European Parliament, for a, Europe, for, for a British government that I can throw out if I don't like it, if they fail me. I can't throw out the European Council because I'm only one country out of 29. So people say, look, if, that, if that's the commitment we're being asked, then we can't live with that. Now, maybe in other countries it's different. So what we are seeking for Britain, for any other country that wants it as well, but certainly for Britain, is a clarification that committing yourself to ever closer union of the peoples of Europe, we are not committing, and we, we do not have an obligation to transfer national sovereignty as, a, as, as if it's something that was desirable in itself. That if that's what being a member of the European Union means you not only start with, but continue to do more and more of over the years to come, regardless of how strong or weak you think the arguments for doing so might be. So it's that clarification. And I do not think any other country will suffer uh, if we are able to say to our people, we have that clarification, it's a binding, understanding, commitment, whatever phrase one wishes to use, uh, and uh, that therefore meets that part of the political debate that is, I have to say, as the chairman of the trial, it's of 
very great importance in this country, perhaps more than any other European member state. So we're here after the first half of the Brexit negotiation. Norman Lamont's been presenting his uh, proposals, which was, uh, I think, a thoughtful uh, gambit uh, beyond what one might expect from his reputation in his history, talking about an integrated package of uh, trade uh, in agriculture and in industrial products, close cooperation on financial services, uh, together with a, a financial contribution, so recognising the UK wasn't going to be getting any of this for free. Now, uh, for the rest of the session, uh, it's fair to describe it as a, as a monstering. Uh, everyone, everyone around the table went to town. A disappointment, uh, a degree of anger that the British had chosen to uh, take such a course and that if they thought that they would get anything from the EU, they would have another thing coming. One kind of uh, telling expression, the, the Polish delegate uh, said, well, we're going to give you a, a hard time because we don't want anybody else to be thinking about uh, uh, leaving as, a, as an option. Now, uh, in all of that, I think it, you know, a lot of that was uh, heat rather than light. But it did point out that this is a very different kind of discussion from the uh, reform negotiation. It's not about trying to keep someone in. It's about somebody who's made a decision to leave uh, and now who wants to kind of uh, sort of come back in or retain some of the benefits without some of the costs. So uh, it is a very different kind of uh, approach, but uh, it does tell us something, uh, I think, useful. Uh, particularly, it highlights some of the, the challenges. Uh, very strong interventions on several occasions from John Bruton, uh, the Taoiseach, uh, about the Irish situation, you know, calling it an unfriendly act, that you know, it, it really does make uh, Ireland's economy, Ireland's politics very much more difficult to have the UK out of the EU, whether that's in terms of access to markets, in terms of free movement, all of those things uh, become much, much more difficult uh, post-Brexit. The moderators uh, tried to encourage uh, the participants to, to move beyond the, the bile uh, and to, to get into some substance. Uh, whether they manage that or not, we'll see in the second half. Looking back on this as a whole, and uh, I'm recording this last bit uh, after the events, as uh, uh, the end of the day seemed to beckon quite uh, strongly at that point, um, I think what you can see here is some of the challenges and the issues that uh, I think we uh, all appreciated uh, exist in this particular renegotiation. Uh, the basic dynamic, I think, is, is clear, that here we have a... Uh, EU that is prepared to make some concessions, it sees a value in British membership and it's going to try and uh, find uh, a solution that works uh, for the current renegotiation, but that that won't come at any price. Um, but balanced against that, there's also a, a clear determination that if the UK does decide that uh, it doesn't want to go uh, on with being a member, that then uh, they're not going to get uh, much in the way of concessions. Now, you can make an argument that that's uh, fairly obvious, that you know we're changing from uh, keeping someone in to somebody who said they want to leave, who wants to uh, keep uh, all the good bits with none of the costs. Um, that's a very different kind of uh, proposition. But at a point where uh, 
negotiations seem to be moving towards a, a more critical kind of juncture, we we might argue that's still a useful point on which to um, reflect that, uh, particularly in the context of a two-referendum uh, strategy uh, that I mentioned, that you know you might try and exact a, a better deal uh, off the back of a, a no vote um, the first time round, that actually uh, you are not uh, necessarily going to achieve that, that people might say, well, you've made your choice, uh, you now have to uh, live with it. So uh, if you like, you can read this as a cautionary tale that uh, uh, leave means leave and that you do that uh, at your peril. Or alternatively, you can read it as uh, something which says, well, okay, Yes, there was a lot of uh, annoyance and anger, but uh, you know the, the the game, if it had been allowed to to carry on, and it's worth saying that the second half of the afternoon uh, continued much in the same vein with uh, uh, expressions of regret and unhappiness that uh, the UK might uh, have chosen to have left the EU. That's still not the same as uh, saying that uh, there aren't deals to be done. That. Uh, I think it was interesting that uh, one of the interventions from uh, Carol de Hucht, who's the former commissioner who's playing the commission, uh, was saying that you know even the kind of the default WTO option uh, might not be a, uh, a real option here. That uh, there was a question about what uh, tariffs might apply, and there's a whole lot of stuff that isn't covered by the WTO. So we have to work out something, uh, and there is no. Um, default uh, arrangement that comes in that kick, kicks into effect uh, should we not be able to agree at the end of the two-year uh, Article 50 process. Again, I think what you're going to see here is, is going to be a, a lot of uh, spin uh, around this and certainly having looked at some of the, the early media reports that are coming out, uh, that comment that I made earlier in the programme about... Uh, uh, the Polish uh, representative saying, well, you know, we won't give you a good deal because we want to discourage others uh, from doing that, has been seized upon as an example of uh, the kind of the threats, the project fear type agenda uh, that it uh, has uh, has been put about, the kind of the very negative construction. At the same time, you know, you've seen uh, some people picking up on uh, Enrico Letta's uh, statements uh, that uh, it would actually be foolish to try and have a referendum this June because it would be in the middle of another refugee crisis because the EU is not going to get that sorted. So we need to uh, actually think then about uh, timeframes again. Maybe the the, the less loaded message here is that, uh, again, this referendum... And this renegotiation is not just about the UK. It's also about the EU. And if we're to find a, a solution uh, and a, a way through this, that needs to be kept in mind because otherwise we're going to end up with uh, a situation where uh, the needs of one side are met and the needs of the other are not. And whilst there's an argument you can make that that's perfectly acceptable and reasonable uh, in the longer run that's probably going to cause more problems anyway i hope you like my first attempt at a outside broadcast i think i might invest in a different kind of microphone uh, but uh, yeah it's been fun and uh, i shall see you in the next episode